Well, man, it's uh, good to gather with you this morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just good to be with you uh, to sing the songs we sang to open up God's Word this morning. And we're going to continue to do that now. So if you need a Bible, would you just raise your hand? Uh, somebody will bring a Bible around to you so that you can read along with us this morning. We'd love to give that to you as a gift if you don't actually own a Bible uh, so that you can have God's Word to read throughout the week. We've been going through a series called the Torah, and that's a a series we've gone through where we're just kind of going through the first five books of the Bible at at a high level. And so we were in Leviticus last week. We continue to be in Leviticus this week. But as we go through this this series right now at a high level in the book of Leviticus, it it would be easy for us to kind of skip around and pick texts that would be easier to preach than others. But we don't want to do that, and so today we're going to come to and open up the word to a difficult text. It's difficult, but it's important. It's difficult not because it's hard to understand. It's difficult because it presses on convictions of our culture. It's important because it helps us to understand God To understand that he is God and that we are not God. And that as God, all of his commands that he gives to us are for our joy. Today we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus Leviticus chapter 18 is a text that deals with sexuality and sexual relationships. This sermon may look and feel a little bit different because the purpose of this sermon is to really teach us what a biblical what biblical truth is about sexuality, to have a biblical sexual ethic when we understand what God's word says. Leviticus 18 is a hotly contested portion of scripture. So today I want us to understand it because we're going to continue to come across it in culture and in, in the church. But As we go through Leviticus 18, I want to make sure that we understand something. This doesn't just challenge us in our understanding of sexuality. It doesn't just challenge us in our understanding of our own sexual lives. It presses on some core issues. It presses on mainly one core issue regarding our relationship with God and who we believe Him to be and how we see ourselves in relation to Him. So there's three kind of main points we're going to kind of move through the text and see. And so I want to go ahead and give you those now so that you can see these weaved throughout this time in God's word. The first one is this. God's design for sex is good. God's design for sex is good. The second thing, though, is that sin has distorted God's design for sex. And lastly, Jesus has redeemed God's design for sex. So with that, let's pray And then open up God's word together. Father, we're grateful for our time uh, to gather this morning to be able to open up your word. And Lord, as we come to a text that would be easy to skip over and not have to deal with and walk through. uh, Lord, we pray that as we seek to be faithful to your word, preaching the whole counsel of scripture, that you'd be glorified today. Lord, help us to understand it. I pray that your truth would hit us not just in our minds, but in our hearts. And that you'd bring biblical convictions to our lives that would overflow in a life that's glorifying and pleasing to you. Lord, help us to love you more, to follow you more faithfully, to be thankful for who you are and who we are now in light of who you are. Namely, through Christ. So we give you this time. We pray that you'd be honored by it. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and open up to Leviticus chapter 18. We're going to go through this whole chapter. This morning, uh, but to begin, I'm just going to read the first five verses. So Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5, say this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Leviticus 18 is a pretty straightforward text that tells God's people how to live under God's rule. Much of the law is like that, as God is giving this to his people, saying it's good for you to follow me, to live under my rule. And so as we open up to Leviticus 18, we see it's not really that hard to understand. 
He, he, God lays out all the things that he wants us to understand about biblical sexuality. So there's not a lot we have to dig into to really get at what God is saying. But before we get into those specific commands that God lists out in this chapter, I don't want us to breeze past what he said in these first five verses, because that really sets kind of the, the thesis for why this matters, why God gives the commands that he gives, in this case, regarding sexuality. God's word to Moses begins with an important message. He says to Moses, tell the people, I am the Lord, your God. Again, we've talked about this through this series, but when we see Lord capitalized in our English Bibles, that's a translation of God's name, Yahweh. So God's saying, tell the people, remind the people again, I am Yahweh, your God. This is a defining statement. God's saying, don't forget who I am. Don't forget what that means. I'm not a tribal God. I'm not a local deity. I'm not a counselor or an advisor. I am the living God. And then God gives a very specific overarching command to his people. He says, don't live like the people from the land you came from. And don't live like the people from the land you're going to. Instead, follow me. Listen to me. Obey me. Why? Because I am Yahweh, your God. See, God's making a very clear and definitive statement. Don't follow culture, the culture that you're placed in. Follow me instead. What this means is is that all of the things that he's about to say are not suggestions. This is about his lordship. Do I follow God as Lord or do I follow the way of the world? Do I seek to obey it? But it's also not just about following God's commands. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. What God is not saying is that by walking in obedience, by doing what God says, that we will earn life, that we'll we'll be brought into a right relationship with him. We know that from scripture. We've looked at that over the last few weeks here as we've gathered together. It's not by works that any of us are made right with God. It's by his mercy and his grace. What he's talking about here is seeing that life is a gift of grace. It comes by being in relationship with God. Very simply put, life is better. It's better when we walk in obedience, following God and his commands. It's better. It doesn't mean it's easier. It doesn't mean it's perfect. But it's better to follow God as Lord. Because he is Lord. Because he is God, because he is the creator and sustainer of all things, and because he is good. That's what God's establishing here in these first five verses. It's important for us to see that before we get into the commands he gives. And as we've said before at Sojourn, and we'll continue to say again, all of God's commands then are for our joy. They're for our joy. They're for our good. He's giving these commands to his people for life, for their joy, for the good of these people. Specifically here about sex. Now you may be saying, why does God feel the need to talk about this? Why is this the law that he gives to his people? It's because they live in a very sexualized time and place. See, I think sometimes we think in the 20th and 21st century that we have now become a a sexualized culture. But that's been the way for a long time. It's been that way since the beginning. We preached on Genesis 38 uh, several months ago. We saw the brokenness, the dysfunction of sexuality within our world. And that has come since the beginning, since sin entered into the world. So things aren't worse than they've been before. They're just very much the same as they've been for a very long time. This means that God is saying to his people as the creator of life and of sexuality that following him and his design for those things is good. Yahweh is Lord. His commands are for the good of his people and the praise of his name. So understanding that, we can then jump into these specific commands that he gives. We can kind of break them down into two categories. The first category is outlined in verses 6 through 18. And God gives specific commands about family sexual relationships. Verses 19 through 23 kind of encapsulate a second category of commands. And this is just a general, uh, just general laws about other sexual sin. So let's look at what he says. Verse 6. He says, none of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. 
This may seem like a weird statement saying, well, what does it mean to approach a close relative and uncover their nakedness? Well, another English translation cuts a little bit more to the chase here in its translation. And it says this of verse six, it says, you are not to come near any close relative for sexual intercourse. That's what God's trying to communicate here in verse 6. And close relatives should be obvious to us. It's saying your your immediate family, that's that's an obvious thing to God's people when he says close relative. In fact, in other places in God's law, he specifically mentions specific family members in conjunction with being a close relative. So verse 6 is an overarching statement against any and all incestuous relationships. But the rest of the verses, 7 through 18, he seeks to give definition to that. Say, I don't want you to be closed off to thinking it's just about your immediate family. This this goes beyond that. Who, in addition to those people, am I talking about? The way that the ESV, that's the English version of the Bible that we preach from at Sojourn, the way that it translates the the Hebrew here throughout this text is uncovering nakedness. But like we said, that really is talking about sexual relationships. It's It's a euphemism. It's an idiomatic way to talk about all sexual relationships. Now, you can read all of those on your own. I'm not going to go through every single verse in that section right there, but the gist of what he's saying not necessarily in an exhaustive way, but in a very descriptive way, is that incest in any way, shape, or form is not to be committed. At the end of the day, though, I think one of the major things we have to see in this is God is addressing power over the powerless. Oftentimes in this culture and society, the one who was in power or in control could seek to abuse others, even family members, sexually. And God's saying that is not okay. Abuse is never okay, and God is not mocked, so we should take that seriously. The second category of sexual conduct is listed out in verses 19 through 23. There are five specific commands given by God, and I'm going to highlight some quickly and elaborate on others a bit. Verse 19, he says, You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she's in her menstrual uncleanness. Now, you might be thinking two things right now. One, that sounds really weird. And secondly, are we really going to talk about this? Well, it's in the Bible. So, yes, yes, we are going to talk about it. Now, based off other aspects of the law stated in Leviticus and our understanding of these different laws about being ceremonially clean or unclean in worship, I think that's in line with what God has said in other places here, but with one nuanced thing. Based on the context... Based on pagan practice, this law is dealing with a husband who is demanding sex from his wife while she's on her period. Again, this is an issue of power over the powerless. So two quick things for us to note from this. First, Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law related to worship and cleanness. What this means is your wife is clean and you are clean. The ethic, though, still remains. The ethic of this still remains. In other words, men, love your wife. Don't ever demand sex from her, ever. And it might be a good time of the month to abstain from sex in order order to serve her and to seek after the Lord. Next command, verse 20. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. Or, as the seventh commandment clearly states, do not commit adultery in any way, shape, or form. Verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, this is an interesting command in the midst of talking about these laws about sexual relationships, because as we look at this, this doesn't seem to mention that. So there's two main options for us here in understanding this text of why it might be in this list of laws. The first is that this is a command not to sacrifice your children to a false god. And because children are a natural result of sex with your spouse, that's why it's listed here. A second reason this may be here is that this is a command not to give your children to the temple of a false god, to be used as a temple prostitute, which would have been common in the cultures that they were going into. Either way, this brings up again that we should never seek to abuse the powerless. 
Never seek to assert power over the powerless in a sexual way. Verse 4. I mean verse 4. The fourth one. Verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. This is a clear command from God's word that homosexuality is not part of God's design. There's no qualification to it. There's no nuance to it. It's stated simply because it's a straightforward command from God. And we're going to come back to this in a bit. Verse 23. You shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Very simply put, bestiality is also not okay in any way, shape, or form. Now God concludes here this section uh, talking about sexuality and the laws that he gives to his people as they get ready to go out from Egypt into Canaan. And he says this in verses 24 through 30. He says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean. So that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. This matters to God because it goes against his design for sexuality. We said at the very beginning, God's design for sex is good. But what we see in this, the reason God has to give these commands, is because sin has distorted God's design. And all of these things are serious, and they should be taken seriously. Verse 29 says that if we do these things, it will be cut off, God's people will be cut off from their people. And being cut off from God's people is serious. It's not a good thing. So he says in verse 30, then keep my charge. Keep my charge. Why? Because I am Yahweh, your God. Now, Leviticus 18 is a text that our culture likes to cherry pick or pick apart. It likes to cherry pick or pick apart regarding sexual ethics, but both pursuits of that are wrong If we really want to understand Leviticus 18, we have to understand it in its immediate context, and we have to understand it in light of all of Scripture. In its immediate context, as stated in verses 1 through 5, God wants his people to be holy. He knows that they're not, he hasn't removed them from the world. They live in a sexualized, fallen world. And so God's saying, I I want you to be holy. I'm calling you, Israel, to uphold my good and holy design for sexuality. In Leviticus 19, 19 verse 2, God says, you, you should be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's what God is calling them to. In this life, in this life, and it leads to life, not death. Which leads to our second context, talking about God's good design. And that is seeing that we need to understand this in light of the whole Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. Now, we don't have time to go through all of that this morning, but I want to look back at the very beginning of the scriptures of God's word to us in Genesis chapter 2. Two verses in Genesis chapter 2 are really, really important for us if we're going to understand Leviticus 18 and seek to actually apply it to our lives. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, God says this, Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now this is something, there's a few important things that we need to notice from this. Genesis 2 tells us of marriage, and it very clearly states that sex, by God's design, happens in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. And this is the context of creation. When everything is good, 
There's no spot, no blemish. It's in the order and way that the perfect and holy God has created it to be, ordained it to be. This is put in place prior to sin entering into the world. What this means is this is what God has designed for marriage and sexuality to look like in his good creation. From the very early chapters of scripture, we see sex and sexuality in view. What this means is that you and I didn't figure out sex behind God's back. It wasn't like he was like, oh man, they figured that out. I was hoping that wouldn't happen. No, it's his idea. It's his idea. It wasn't our invention. It's his gift to his people. What that means is that by design, sex is not just functional. It's not just to procreate. It's also pleasurable, which means that sex is a sign of the goodness of God. One of the major purposes of sex between a husband and a wife is to express, experience, and deepen the union between the two of them. See, both men and women are made in the image of God. And I believe that through marriage and through the sexual union that the image of God is realized in its fullness as we see both man and both man and woman come together in that relationship. And again, that's God's design before sin enters in the world. What that means is that God is for sex, not against it. He's for sex, but sex is for marriage. But here's something really important for us to see. We can't just look at Genesis 2 and again and just kind of breeze past it and not realize something really important that he says in these first few verses here at the very beginning of the scriptures. Notice what he says in verse 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Adam didn't have a mom. He didn't have a mom to leave. So God can't be saying this is just about him. See, Adam and Eve represent all of humanity. They represent all of humanity. So God is very clearly and simply stating that this is his design for marriage. This is his design for sex for all humanity. This is a creation ordinance. God laying out for all of us to know this is what I believe. This is what is, not what I believe, this is what I've created this to be. I've created this to be between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, and for it to be enjoyed in the confines of that marriage. And it's good for all of us. So this brings us back kind of full circle to Leviticus 18 then. See, the laws in Leviticus 18 then are not about ritual purity. They're not even merely just a moral issue. This is about God's design for sexuality. It's about God's design for it. Now, you may think, okay, great, that's good, I think I understand that, but all this stuff's in the Old Testament. It's all in the Old Testament, and, and I think I remember us talking, or maybe I've heard before, that we don't have to follow the Old Testament laws anymore, so how can this really be relevant to us now? Well, in some respects, you are right that we don't follow all the Old Testament laws. They're not all applicable to us now, but the reason for that is because Jesus has fulfilled all aspects of the law. But there's different aspects of the law, and Jesus fulfills them in different ways. Jesus first has declared and made all things clean, meaning that all the ceremonial and cleanliness laws have been fulfilled. We don't have to follow those anymore because Jesus declared that. Jesus also is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, so we don't have to carry out the laws and commands related to worship and sacrifice. As we talked about last week, we don't continue to perpetuate the Day of Atonement because Jesus has completed that for us. But Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. What that means is that he is Lord and that he is King and that because he has freed us, by going to the cross for us, by paying the penalty of our sin for us and being raised again from the dead, that he has freed us from sin so that we can now walk in obedience to him. So the moral law of the Old Testament is relevant to us, not just because it's in the Old Testament, but because Jesus reaffirms it in the New Testament. He is God. He is king. And we follow him. Matthew 19 is one example of this as it relates to Leviticus 18. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus reaffirms God's design for marriage and sexuality. He he refers back to Genesis chapter 2. He says, this is how God's designed this to be. This is what this is supposed to look like. 
So Jesus brings that into the New Testament as a part of his kingdom. And he explains it even more, saying there's really only two options. Either a person is married or they're celibate. He leaves no room for sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Jesus lays that out in Matthew 19 for us. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who has written a lot of the New Testament, reaffirms the sexual ethic that's given by God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he upholds God's commands about incest. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he upholds God's commands about adultery and homosexuality. And he even amps it up a bit here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes this. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What we see here in 1 Corinthians 6 is just one example in the New Testament of the sexual ethics of Leviticus 18 being being brought in and understood in like manner into the New Testament. And the language is very similar. You will not inherit the kingdom of God sounds a lot like you will be cut off from God's people. Now there's another phrase in 1 Corinthians 6 that I want to make sure that we understand because I don't want you to sit here and think, I don't struggle with incest, I don't struggle with, uh, with adultery, I don't struggle with homosexuality, I don't struggle with bestiality, and so I, I don't really need to pay attention. This isn't relevant to me. No, see, the word sexual immorality makes it relevant to you. Because the definition for and the purpose of the term sexual immorality is it's giving an all-encompassing phrase. It's not specific to a certain type of sin. Here's my definition of it. Sexual immorality is any sexual conduct that is outside of God's design for sex. It's any sexual conduct, thoughts, and actions that are outside of God's design for sex. The reason Paul says, the reason that Jesus says this is because God gave us his good design for sexuality and marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, but sin has distorted it. So they're addressing that just like Leviticus 18 addresses it. What that means is that it doesn't just apply to Israel, it applies to us as well. See, the explicit commands and principles of Leviticus 18 are applicable today because we now are God's people. We are God's people, and we must be distinguished from the world in our sexuality. Jesus has not removed us from the world. He's, he's, he's called us out of it, but he sent us back into it, saying, be in the world, but not of the world. Why does he have to tell us this now? Because the world does not uphold God's design for sexuality. Because the world does not live under God's lordship. And just like the people of Israel, he's calling you to be holy as he is holy. See, these commands were just as countercultural to Israel as they are for us today. I don't want us to think that we've kind of moved on. We're in a different phase of culture where these are really countercultural today. We, we see this. God's saying, don't be like the place you came from. Don't be like the culture you came from. And don't be like the one you're going to. And here's why. Here are all these commands for you. These are just as countercultural then as they are today. See, culture tells us that sex ultimately is self-serving. It's self-serving. Our culture says and has taught us that sex is a physical desire that should be met physically as long as it doesn't harm another person. Therefore, if you desire to have sex, you should seek to fulfill that desire in a culturally appropriate way. Culture right now does not approve of sex with children, so that's not okay. But culture does approve with sex with people of the same sex, so that is okay. Culture does approve of pornography, so that is okay. But it's a slippery slope. Because what's appropriate is an ever-widening reality. But the real issue is, is this is not what God has taught us. This is not what he has taught us about sex. See, society is not progressing in its understanding of sexuality. Sin simply is continuing to distort God's design for it. God, on the other hand, says that sex is ultimately selfless serving. It's selfless serving. It's not about you. 
It's about you giving yourself completely to another person and that person giving themselves completely to you, being united as one flesh, seeing the image of God in its fullness between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And we know that God desires this to be a picture of his grace in our lives because he uses the marriage analogy in Ephesians chapter 5, saying that Jesus is like the husband and the church, his people are like the bride united together. See, so biblical sexual ethics then are not intolerant, outdated, and outmoded. They're loving, transcendent, timeless, and good. Why? Because God created sex. God gifted it to his image bearers. And he is loving. He is transcendent. He is timeless. And he is good. But Sojourn, I think if we dig a little bit deeper... If we dig a little bit deeper into our own hearts and our own lives and realize, I think, that one of the main reasons, if not the major reason, that we don't like to hear this, that we struggle with this, that we chafe against it, why our culture does as well, regarding biblical sexual ethics, is because of the influence we have from culture. See, all of us live in what could be called a post-enlightenment time. A post-enlightenment time. We believe now that we can be self-sovereign determiners of truth and ethics. That we can now sit over the word. That we can decide what is right and what is wrong. What is true and what is false. What that means is it places us on an equal playing field with God, if not above him, to decide, well, I don't like what you say here, God. You have to prove yourself to me, God. I don't think this is good for me, so I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. And so we take God's word. Instead of allowing it to sit over us and speak down into our life, we stand over it and look down at it and judge it. Which leads us astray. But the the problem with that is, is that we don't know who we actually are. And we don't really understand then who God is. How many times in Leviticus 18 does God in some form or fashion say to us that he is the Lord God? Just in this text alone, he says it six times. Six times. In some way, he says, I am Lord. I am your God. What that means is that you and I are not self-sovereigns. God is sovereign. He is king. And all of us now, as his creation are called to sit under his word, not over it, because he is Lord. See, when you and I decide what is right or wrong, we sound a lot like the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? Does God really not want you to do that? God's holding out on you. That's what the serpent said to Adam and Eve. And when we start to do that, we sound more like him than we sound like our heavenly father. Look, sexuality is not a political issue. It's not a political issue. It's a spiritual issue, which makes it a personal issue. This is about submitting to the lordship of Yahweh, our God, or trying to be Lord of our life. So the only political thing about this is who is your king? Who is your king? Who do you follow? Sojourn sexuality is not something we define. It's God's creation. It's his gift. And like all of his creation, we're to use it in the way that he says we are to use it. For his glory and for our good. Because God is good. Because all of his commands are for our joy. It goes back to Leviticus 18 verse 5. Life is found in following him. Life is found in following him. So my question is, do you believe that or not? Do you really believe that? Do you believe all of God's commands are for your joy? Do you believe that he has your best in mind? Do you believe that he's good? And that how he says we should live is the best way that we should live. All of this, though, needs to be looked at as part of the wider message of the gospel. See, this isn't about doing. This is about resting. It's not about doing. It's about resting in what Jesus has done for us. Sexual immorality of any kind makes you unclean, as Leviticus states. But sojourn, let's not forget, Jesus makes us clean. Jesus makes us clean. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right after Paul has listed off all these things, saying, do you not know that these people who practice these things, who are living in these, these kinds of lives, will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. This used to be your life, but it's not your life anymore. How is that possible? He says, because of this. Because you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What that tells us this morning is that there is hope. There is hope. The Corinthians were marked by sexual immorality of various kinds, but Jesus saved them and Jesus is changing them. There's hope and there's grace that comes in and through Christ who redeems and restores See, I think the reason Paul says this to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is because he realized that there's still temptation. The Corinthians, just like you and me, are in a culture, a sexualized culture that says, do what you want, go your own way. He didn't remove them out of it. He said, I've called you out, but I've sent you back in not to be, to be in the world, but not to be of the world. And so Paul is saying, just like God said to Israel, you need to pay attention Your identity has fundamentally changed. You were once in Adam, but now you're in Christ. Jesus is Lord, so follow him. Listen to what he says a few verses later in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. He says then, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. Jesus is Lord. So now glorify God with your body. Sexual sin including homosexuality, is not unpardonable sin, but it is serious. But that's why the gospel is good news to all people. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, died the death that we deserve to die for our sin, all of it, and was raised so that you and I might have new life. And by God's grace and the Spirit now in us, we can walk in obedience to the law of Christ, our King, We can now, because of Christ, be holy as God is holy. We can now live a redeemed sexuality. God's design for sex is good. Sin has distorted that design, but Jesus has redeemed God's design and now allows us to do that, living in it, saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. Look, at some level, all of us struggle with a distorted view of sex. All of us do. Whether that's engaging sexually with another person of the same sex. Whether it's engaging sexually with a person who's not our husband or our wife, even in a dating relationship. Whether it's engaging with an image on a screen or the lustful thoughts of our minds and our hearts. I think for some of us, we don't even realize how much we are tainted by things as we, in, we are entertained by self-serving views of sex and the TVs, TV shows and the movies that we watch. Not even recognizing them as commentary against God's design for sexuality. We just think they're fun to watch. Entertaining. Look, all of us need to begin with our own hearts. This isn't about looking around the room. It's not about pointing fingers. It's not about blogging. It's not about getting on a political commentary show and making comments. It starts with you. Looking at your own heart and your own life. Submitting yourself completely, your sexuality completely to the lordship of Jesus. Not conforming to the sexual ethic of our culture, but to the sexual ethic of our good God. But Sojourn, we must do this together. Our culture champions the validity of living an alternative lifestyle. Of living an alternative sexual lifestyle. It says, do whatever you want. If that's what you want to do, then that's fine. You just go do it. Live how you want to live. But as God's people... As God's people, we should champion the glorious of, gloriousness of an alternative kingdom, God's kingdom. We don't need to rail against alternative lifestyles. We need to tell people there's something better, and it's God's kingdom. This begins and manifests itself in God's people as we seek to live as citizens of the new city, following our risen king. See, a kingdom community is not interested in morality for the sake of morality. 
It's about following a good king who loves us, who cares for us, who always has our best in mind. It's about helping one another with that. Knowing that following Jesus requires all of us to give things up, some seemingly more than others, but that Jesus is always better. It's always better to do that because he is better. A kingdom community is also a family, but it doesn't idolize family. I think one of the biggest idols in the church today is family, either the one you have or the one you hope to have. Maybe that's in the form of a husband or a wife or kids or sex. But the gospel creates a new family of all kinds of people, all kinds of people. In the alternative kingdom, God's kingdom values being single and it values being married. Because we realize that Jesus, following the design of God, holds out marriage and a celibate single life as the alternatives for his people and says those things are good. Jesus himself is single and celibate. That's a good thing to follow. Man, this is one of the reasons we do community groups the way that we do. Having people who are married and people who are single, doing life together, being in community with one another because everyone has something to offer someone else. We all help each other. There's not a higher status of spirituality if you're married. We should seek to value all of those things so that we can all walk in following Jesus, helping each other along the way. As a kingdom community of grace, we all have to help one another another understand that life is far, far better when Jesus is at the center of it. And far, far worse when anyone or anything else is. Some of you are struggling right now with sexual immorality in some way, some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's just in your thoughts. Maybe it's in your actions with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Maybe you're in an adulterous affair right now. Some of you are struggling with same-sex attraction. But hear me on this. Sex, sexual desires, and sexual fulfillment as a God will always let you down. It'll never deliver on its promises. It only leads to death. And Jesus is better. All of us then with sexual sin need to bring those things before the Lord in true confession. Just like all of us need to bring any of our sin before the Lord in true confession. Knowing that Jesus is Lord. And because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we can ask for forgiveness. Ask him to cleanse us and he will do that work. This is relevant to all of us because we all fight together. Not fight each other. Not fight our culture. We fight alongside one another and for one another. So sojourn, let's be open and honest about our struggles, about our hurts, about our abuses in community. All of us, let's all be open regardless of our struggles, regardless of our sexual desires, regardless of our marital status. And seek to encourage one another in the truth of the gospel. As Alan reminded us last week, we are not trying to impress one another or God. We're a community that's marked by grace, a community that should be a place of rest. So let's be open and talk with one another about what's going on in our life. Some of you are weary and burdened right now. You're weary and burdened because you've heard this before and you feel like this is just coming hard at you. You're weary and burdened because you just, you don't feel like you can get out from under this sin in your life. But Jesus' words to you today are, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if you need rest, come to Jesus today for it. Sojourn, let's lovingly and graciously hold one another accountable to living a redeemed sexuality. Following Jesus as Lord because we believe that Jesus is better and that all of God's commands are for our joy. I want us to talk about this in community group this week. To be able just to really get practical and say, man, what does this look like in my life? What does it look like for me to live a redeemed sexuality? How do we actually do this? How do we help one another? I want us to take time in community group to hash that out this week to encourage one another. Let me close with two final things, though. We can address sexual ethics in our culture. We can address sexual ethics in our culture, but it must be in and through the gospel of grace. Promoting morality without the gospel leads to death, not life. 
for you to go and tell someone to be holy as God is holy when they don't have the transforming power of the gospel of grace will not help anyone. It'll only lead to death. So if you feel the need to talk to somebody about sexuality, my suggestion is you start talking to them about the gospel first. It starts with your heart. Look, we're not seeking to create a bunch of moralistic, well-behaved people. We want to see people become redeemed worshipers of God, and that comes only in and through Jesus. So talk to people about their heart. Tell them about Jesus. And let me also say to you, brother or sister, who doesn't struggle with these things, who agrees with the sexual ethic of Scripture, that you do not champion these things because of a political platform. If you say yes and amen to these things, I want it to be because you believe that our God is good. Because you believe that he's gracious. Because you believe that he's kind. Because you believe that all of his commands are for our joy and because, for our good. And because you love people. Because you love people. And because you want to do all things to the glory of God and for the good of others. That that's why you say yes and amen to these things. Sexuality, specifically homosexuality, is not a political issue. It's a personal issue. So know that there's people around you every day who are in this right now. There's people in this room who struggle with this right now. So I want you to think. I want you to think, how can you encourage them in the gospel? How can you encourage them in the gospel? The church should be a haven for all people. Because all people are made in the image of God. We should be a, a, a friend, a trusted friend of sinners just like Jesus. Not an enemy of sinners. Remember, such were some of you, but God saved you. Look, the church does not have a good track record when it comes to dealing with things like homosexuality. In fact, I would say it's been a complete train wreck. Being sojourn, I don't want us to be that way. I, won't, I don't want that to be our church. Upholding biblical sexual ethics does not force us to hate. And it doesn't force us to distance ourselves. It's quite the opposite. It should compel us to kindness and love and grace to engage with real people as real people. So we will not tolerate hate, slander, isolation, ridicule of any type by any person regarding any sin, whether that be homosexuality, pornography, or any type of sexual immorality. I want us to be a church that lives out the implications of the gospel. That speaks the gospel to people. Because we care about people. Because all people need to be reconciled to God. Just as you and I need to be reconciled to God. Because all people bear the image of God. So listen. If you're struggling right now. Don't remain silent. We want you here. We're glad that you're here. We're hopeful for what God can do in your life. Everyone, everyone is welcome in this community. Sojourn's message, which is the Bible's message, is not just stop doing these things. It's believe the gospel. It's turn away from sin and turn to grace, which is found in and through Jesus alone. It's Jesus is better. Jesus doesn't bring condemnation. He brings freedom. In Jesus, there's hope. There's healing, there's grace, there's forgiveness in Jesus. There's redemption from all things that you've done and all things that have been done to you. In Jesus, there's restoration. So come to Jesus to be made whole. Nothing else and no one else will. Sojourn as a people of grace, as citizens of God's kingdom, let's remind one another that God is good. Remind one another that Jesus is better and ask him to help us believe that that's true. Last week, Alan reminded us that when we come forward to take communion, that we come to partake in a meal of rest. A meal of rest. 
We don't have to come with a facade or a mask on. We come as we are. And in it, we are reminded that it's only in and through Jesus that we're made whole. It's only in and through Jesus that we can be reconciled to God. It's only in and through Jesus that we can joyfully follow God in all things. So before you come forward this morning to take communion, let me call you to do two things. First, just confess your sin before the Lord. Confess your sexual brokenness in whatever form that's taking place in your life right now. Bring it before him. Ask him to forgive you and cleanse you from it. And then come to the table. Come to be encouraged in grace, knowing that your sinless Savior died, and now you've been set free. Set free to live a life of freedom in God's good design. And if you're not a follower of Christ yet, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion because this is a declaration for us that we are desperate for God's grace. We are desperate for his grace. We're desperate to follow him, to know him, and we know that we have no, nothing apart from him. And so if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, then instead of coming forward this morning to take communion, we want you to take Christ today. Maybe you don't even know what that looks like yet, but you want Jesus. So just stay in your seat and just pray that. Just say, Jesus, I want you. I don't want this life of brokenness anymore. I want you. And please come talk to me afterwards or any of our other leaders. We'd love to talk to you, to pray with you, to help you understand what it looks like to start following Jesus today. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. And you can take it immediately or when you get back to your seat. Let's pray. Father, we are... We are so in need of your help, so in need of your grace, so in need of your spirit. Our world, our flesh, so many things around us are constantly pulling us away from you, speaking false gospels into our life, telling us this is where life is found, this is where life is found. You'll be happy here, you'll be happy here. Do these things, do whatever you want. Lord, would you just help us to listen to your word this morning? Would you help us this morning to believe that you are good and that all of your commands are for our joy? Would you help us to believe that if we're struggling right now? Would you help us to realize that sometimes life is hard, the things that we turn away from are difficult to turn away from, but that we would believe that life is found in Jesus and Jesus alone? Lord, I pray that we'd be a repentant people, that we'd bring our sin before you this morning, just the sexual brokenness of our own lives before you this morning and cry out to you to forgive us and to cleanse us and to rest in Jesus today. I pray this morning that we'd bring before you our judgmentalism and our self-righteousness, our hatred, our apathy towards those that are living in sexual brokenness right now. Lord, would you make us a people who love others, who are gracious and kind and not only believe the gospel, but tell others about the gospel. Lord, you bring freedom in this room to people who are struggling right now. And when we take that message of freedom out of these doors into our city so that others might experience it too. Lord, we are desperate for your grace and we thank you that you give it to us lavishly and freely in and through Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.